to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, could we be looking at another special prosecutor? And Richard, word went out earlier this week, courtesy of a Justice Department letter to the House Judiciary Committee that the DOJ is considering the appointment of a special counsel to look into possible corruption at the Clinton Foundation. This goes back to President Obama's first term when Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, sat on a committee that approved the sale of a uranium company that was responsible for about one-fifth of all the uranium production capacity in the United States to a Russian nuclear agency at the same time that some of the executives of the uranium company were making millions of dollars worth of donations to the Clinton Foundation. And the Clinton Foundation also at the time didn't disclose the donors, which was in violation of the pledge that the Clintons had made when Hillary joined the administration. And Richard, there's a lot of politics here to be sure, but at least initially, let's just try to focus on this case itself. Enough here that you think it warrants the Justice Department taking a closer look? Um, taking a closer look is one thing. Giving a special prosecutor is quite another. Um, anytime you hear about money being paid to the Clinton Foundation at the time that she is Secretary of State, it has to give rise to some uneasiness and suspicion. Because so the reason you just said is that when she took the office, she said essentially that the foundation would be out of business with respect to foreign donors. Uh, but that is not enough in my judgment to uh, run this thing through a very elaborate system where you give the power over to somebody who's outside the scope of the Justice Department who could turn out to be a runaway figure the way in which perhaps Mr. Robert Mueller is. And so I think the prudent thing that one ought to do is to try to sort out exactly what's going on through informal sources to see whether or not there's anything there. I have to say, um, at this particular point, I'm uneasy about my sort of individual ignorance about this. These are very complicated transactions. They involve multiple agencies over long periods of time. Uh, Mrs. Clinton, since she's the head of the State Department, clearly has to have a role in it. But the exact extent to which she made the decisions as opposed to individuals who work for who made those decisions is really at this particular point unknown. Uh, there's at least one under official who was involved who said she had nothing to do with the case, which seems to be inconsistent with the account that you gave, uh, that she was the head of the committee that was on it, uh, but it was also a situation in which multiple agencies had to uh, chime in before this thing could take place. And it's also, I think, extremely important to understand what it means to say that you own something when you're dealing with nuclear substances. Ownership essentially normally gives you the right to dispose and to use the materials, but anything which is fissionable is going to go into the head of national security, and you cannot do anything with that stuff unless and until you get serious permits from various United States agencies. And the export of any of this material is again going to be very heavily guarded. Uh, so the fact that you've turned this over to Russian control in the sense that they now own the stuff doesn't mean that you've given them the free right of action uh, given the regulatory apparatus that's on top of it. It's also the case, I gather, but I'm not going to swear to this, that there is some sort of swap and exchange things that take place between the United States and Russia for their mutual advantage. And one of the things that you could imagine about this Uranium One transaction is it fits into that larger scheme of 
operation. So at least on the basis of what I've heard so far, I don't think there's anything here uh, for a special prosecutor. If you're talking about the Uranium One transaction, if you're going to talk about the Clinton Foundation, this becomes one brick in a rather complicated wall, and there may well be something there. But at this point, I'm uneasy for another reason that I think a lot of people share, which is having the incoming administration bring criminal charges against the defeated rival in United States political circles sends a very ominous warning about the way in which government is going to be run. And even if you thought that there was something there that might warrant this, you have to think about the very serious political implications of having one administration go after its uh, former opponent in a national election only a year ago. There has been controversy swirling around the Trump Justice Department from virtually day one insofar as the president very regularly and very loudly, often through Twitter, makes known his opinions about what the Justice Department should and shouldn't be doing. And he's called for investigations in this case. And there's always this anxiety about the Justice Department maintaining its independence and staying depoliticized. Uh, Richard, this can be a little confusing. The attorney general is, after all, a member of the president's cabinet. Are, are there any hard and fast rules as to what does or doesn't cross the line when it comes to a president trying to guide his attorney general? Well, the answer is there are a lot of social norms that are appropriate under these circumstances. And generally speaking, what the president's supposed to do is to give the attorney general general sway in the way in which things are going, at least when it comes to an investigation of his own administration. Otherwise, it's just too much of a conflict of interest. Now, I think Mr. Trump and Mr. Sessions collectively made a very serious mistake I'm not sure about this again, uh, but uh, Sessions was very much involved from an early stage in the Trump campaign. And even if you don't know exactly the way in which those relationships might manifest themselves, you know that Trump is sufficiently cantankerous that they can manifest themselves in some way. And so if you think there's a serious problem uh, that the Trump-Sessions arrangements is going to be subject to some kind of scrutiny, why don't you point any one of the other 300 million Americans as attorney general so as to avoid this problem? And then when it turned out that there may have been some incomplete disclosures that Sessions perhaps properly thought required him to recuse himself from this, the entire wheels of justice were set into operation. And what we ended up with was getting one FBI man, Robert Mueller, investigating the president, often at the instance of another FBI man, Jim Comey, who was one of the people who clearly presented information uh, that was thought to be relevant to this suit. So I think, in effect, that the general rule with respect to conflict of interest, some of them are unavoidable. So if you have a witness who may well be compromised and there's no other witness, you have to hear that witness out and then try to discount the testimony. But when you have a public official who is conflicted, the best thing to do is to get another public official into that particular case so you don't run into the problem. And if Sessions is still in power, you don't get the special prosecutor with respect to this. Now, does Trump have some reason to be troubled about all of this? Well, I think the answer is surely yes. As best I can tell, um, Comey has actually said to him on several times that you're not under investigation, notwithstanding the stuff having concern with this fellow Flynn. All right, well, then why don't you make a public statement? He doesn't do that. And so it's quite clear that Comey is kind of playing a political game with the president. And then when he is fired, he levels both barrels at him. And if Trump is in fact innocent, and if Comey in fact knew that, then this thing should have never taken place. 
Uh, Mueller should have, I think, recused himself because once it's clear that information that comes from Comey may be relevant to his investigation of Trump, there's another conflict of interest. And just as the president doesn't have to appoint Sessions, so it is that Rod Rosenstein doesn't have to appoint Mueller. There's got to be somebody else who can do this job more independently. And so you get this constant web of overseeing conflicts of interest and so forth. And in the end, it creates for a very unwholesome situation. And one of the things I fear is that if Session tries to appoint somebody in this particular case, uh, the investigation will again spin out of control and we'll have yet another round of intrigue, uh, which will again divert public energies from the serious issues of law enforcement, which have to take place under any administration. Would it follow from that that if if we got to a point where it looked like there was fire here as opposed to just maybe the appearance of some smoke, would it be better in your judgment for this to be handled through sort of conventional Justice Department procedures than through the appointment of another special counsel? Um, yes. I mean, a long time ago in, you know, in Morrison against Olson, you know, Justice Scalia, uh, as a very young justice, I was there on the court for only about a year or two, uh, basically said there are worse things in the world than conflicts of interest within the Justice Department. And one of those things is to create somebody who's so independent in his office that nobody else can restrain him in. You give this person a budget that nobody can stop, a subpoena power that is essentially not removable. And by the time you're done, you've got yourself a general freight train, uh, which is is difficult to dislodge. He lost that argument to the good old Justice Rehnquist, who at the time when he wrote for the majority said, there, 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 there's enough residual control over this case uh, that we don't have any real problem of independence uh, that violates the principles of executive control over executive action. Uh, but in the end, I think history proved that Scalia was right and that the risk of independence in a strange way were greater than the risks of conflicts of interest. So the traditional view in the Justice Department is to have a system of soft separation in which you try to give some degree of autonomy to the people who are running this investigation, uh, but nonetheless, they don't have the position where they're completely immune from any and all kind of oversight. And at that point, it's kind of a delicate minuet as to just how much you exert. But this has been used for many times before we had uh, the special prosecutor, and it could have been uh, used again. I, at this particular point, don't see this as coming up with respect to the Clinton thing insofar as it relates to Uranium One, uh, but there are always these kind of side stories about, well, how bad a company were the Canadian guys who took it over? To what extent was the Russian influence corrupting on these situations? But for my money, if you're trying to figure out what's a more serious Hillary Clinton type situation, it is the announcement that the DNC hired this fellow Christopher Steele um, in order to sort of run this investigation. And then some of the information that he prepared was distributed through Russian sources, may have gotten back into the United States and may have been the basis of some of the information that was sent by Comey, even if known perhaps to be false. Uh, to the special prosecutor, to Mueller, to push this thing forward. And, you know, that to me is a much more serious situation. I don't know whether Mrs. Clinton is involved with this, but we also have other stories which suggest that the DNC was under very heavy control of the Clinton um, organization, so imputation is not beyond the pale. Uh, but that, in effect, does involve the Russians, and it also has the following very ironic feeling. The president, ever naive in foreign affairs, sort of announces that he accepts at its word uh, the Putin statement that Russia would never meddle in an American election. Well, Russians were meddling in American elections way back in 1940, so nobody really wants to believe that kind of stuff. But the question is, what's the source of the meddlesome nature here? 
And my view about it is I don't think they so much cared or thought they could influence who won. But what they wanted to do is to put as much invective bile inside the American system so as to delegitimate both candidates to create higher levels of polarization so as to improve the probabilities that the Russians would have a successful chance in dealing with um, some sort of elections. So they don't have to come out for one side or another in order to be very destructive. All they have to do is to try to create a bad atmosphere of opinion. On the other hand, because there are always two hands in these things, uh, the amount of money they spent on their Twitter investigations turned out to be relatively small uh, compared to the huge amount of sources that we otherwise have. So I think the really more serious charge is not what they did to the climate of opinion, uh, but what, if anything, they did to influence the course of this particular investigation. And for that, um, Trump should say, I think the Russians did meddle, and they meddled in cooperation with the DNC. I can't swear whether this is true or false, but it seems to me that that's actually, at this point, it's closer in time, and there are fewer institutional safeguards that you have with respect to that kind of sort of political scuzzy stuff uh, than you have with the very formal processes which involve multiple hands on various tillers. So it's more difficult for Mrs. Clinton to take this whole thing over. And so the presumption is, I think, all things considered, uh, you're going to be very doubtful about the fact that she had either the motive or that kind of influence. The presumption would be against it. And if the presumption is against it, you don't have, in my judgments, enough to have a special cost prosecutor, at least on that issue. There have been suggestions in the press that President Trump may fire Jeff Sessions if there's no investigation here. The president's been very public about his unhappiness with the attorney general at certain points, especially when he recused himself from the Russia investigation. There have also been rumors in the past couple of days that Sessions could stand for his old Senate seat in Alabama now that there's this huge controversy engulfing Roy Moore, who's the Republican candidate there. Uh, Sessions has dismissed that, but the point is that you can imagine several different exit scenarios for Jeff Sessions. And you've said on previous episodes, as you've said here this evening, that Sessions was perhaps too compromised to do this job correctly in the first place. I wonder, given the unique challenges of serving in this administration, in this position, if Sessions were to go sooner or later, what would be the traits you'd want to see in a new attorney? Well, I mean, the first thing you want to ask is, could he ever get a second attorney general confirmed, given the fact that the Senate might be very irate at what's going on? And the president does have the absolute right of dismissal of high senior officials, but he certainly requires Senate confirmation in order to get something through. So if you put that then with the other question, what you want to do is exhume the skull, the soul of Edward Levy. If you recall in 1974, when... Um, Gerald Ford became president. He wanted to get a man whom he thought had an unimpeachable integrity, a kind of flinty toughness, a great sense of principle, and he came upon Edward. And Edward essentially transformed the way in which the Justice Department worked. And the way in which the story was put to me once, and I think it kind of suggests the kind of person you want, uh, one of the underlings in the previous Justice Department uh, comes to Edward Levy, and um, what he does is he puts a document under his nose and gives him a pen and says, please sign this. And what Mr. Levy did is put the pen down, pick up the document, put it in his briefcase and says, I'll read it tonight and get back to you tomorrow. And what that meant was that there was a complete transformation of the way in which the situation ran. Uh, the, the head of the attorney general now is writing shop on everybody. He was a man of unimpeachable integrity and greatness. And that basically restored legitimacy to the government. Well, you need Edward. You got to clone. 
own him. You've got to find somebody who is essentially a figure of genuine legal distinction, who has no particular history in, in partisan politics, who understands enough about complex administration that it can actually take charge of this situation, and it could relieve the anxiety on both sides of the aisle uh, that they're going to be paid for a political sap. I'm not in the business of knowing who my person might well be, uh, but I don't think it should be anybody from the Senate or from government anyway. I just think that's too risky at this particular point in time. It's also, it seems to me, that that's exactly the kind of person that Donald Trump doesn't want to appoint. I think in general, he doesn't like dealing with people who are kind of disinterested academics, independent of the political crises of the moment. And given those particular crises, I think what he wants to do is to find himself a partisan. Uh, So what happens is we do run the very serious risk that either Sessions will step down in frustration or anger, or that Trump will bounce him, and then the office will lay vacant. That means that Rod Rosenstein now takes this thing over. And he, of course, is the man who is in charge of oversight to the extent there is any of the Mueller investigation since he was the person who made the appointment. So I don't think there's a second tier or second leg to this particular story, a second ply to the event that makes it possible. So my guess is that the president's going to bluster. Uh, Sessions is going to be very, very unhappy about all this. But until there's some kind of clear success that's mutually acceptable to all parties, both sides of the aisle, I don't think anything is going to happen because this is an office which is, I think, too important to leave to an to an intermediary or to an acting somebody like Rosenstein, who's also you know been beaten up in part of this particular situation since he was the one who made the original Mueller appointment. It's a very unfortunate type situation, and at least at present, I think the correct response that one does is you could always nose around more. You could let newspapers do their studies. Uh, you can try to figure out what these things are like from public records and so forth. But at least at the moment, I don't see the special prosecutor. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that was the kind of position uh, that our friend Sessions took when he actually was confronted by the Republicans in the Senate. Um, and if that's the case, my guess is at this point, his judgment is correct. But as we say, we're having another show next week. And stay tuned. Uh, many strange things have happened on this particular beat. And many more strange things are likely to happen as we go forward. <laughs> so final question that I'll put to you, Richard. We've got for, I imagine, the first time in American history, in the aftermath of a presidential election, both candidates coming under some pretty serious legal scrutiny. Considering that, should the American people look at that and despair over the quality of our leaders, or should they take some comfort in the idea that the system still works sufficiently well that even people at the commanding heights of power are are still being scrutinized? There's still an effort to hold them accountable. I think the answer is we should do both. Um, it seems to me that the choice between Trump and Clinton at the beginning was very, very difficult. I have no question on most issues. Uh, the Trump deregulatory policies are ones that I support. Uh, I think he's been very weak on trade and, and somewhat unprincipled dealing with immigration. Those are the two issues that can do him in. But on most other things, I think he's been okay on the domestic front. Foreign stuff has been a little bit rockier. Um, but Mrs. Clinton, from A to Z, I can't think of a single important issue on which she has taken a position that I agree with it. Um, and she also, I think, would come under greater scrutiny if she were president because nobody would be inclined to give her a pass if they think they could get some political damage taking place. And if the Republicans controlled the Senate and she controlled the presidency, there would be absolute gridlock on things like the appointment of judges and so forth. Uh, so, you know, I was not happy with either of these 
these choices. Um, but there's nothing obviously that one individual can do about it. But I think the second point you make is really very important. The president is the biggest chip on the table. And anytime he lands on one side or the other of the balance beam, it's going to make a difference. But fortunately, we have so many other independent sources of power uh, in the press. We have it in the Congress. We have it in state governments. We have it every which way uh, that the biggest chip is not the only chip and a constellation of small chips are arrayed against the president can slow him down, if not stop him. Um, so I think we're weathering the storm tolerably well. And remember, there are many positive things that have happened in the past uh, uh, several months. The stock market has gone very high. I actually give Trump some credit for that. He's trying to do something with tax reform. I give him some credit there. I think the single most important thing that he's done is to sort of take his foot off the regulatory accelerator and administrative enforcement. And as people start to believe that they're going to have to worry about less on compliance, they're going to start doing more by way of productive activity. I don't think any of this would have happened if Hillary had been president. So I thought this was a very unhappy choice. The primary system often tends to bring out these kinds of behaviors. I think in the case of Mrs. Clinton, her control over the party was sort of reprehensible. I think with Donald Trump, that was not exactly what the issue was. The tragedy there was uh, the opposition to him couldn't settle on one candidate soon enough in the uh, primaries that he was able to win by a divide and conquer strategy until by the time there was only one person left, Ted Cruz, there wasn't enough gas in the tank. Uh, uh, to reverse the situation. Uh, so I think what one has to do is to uh, work with Trump. If he were to disappear tomorrow and Mike Pence would become president, I would not shed a particular tear. Uh, but I think if I were to go up to him and say, oh, Mr. President, pretty please, will you resign? I think I know what the answer will be. And so sometimes it's better not to ask a question when you know what the answer is going to be instead of ask it and get yourself thwacked around the block. So on that particular note, I think both points that you said are indeed true. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. We'll be back with you soon. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.